0: Uh, this book in a in a topical sort of a, uh <laughs> not line by line as is our usual expositional, exegetical uh method, but rather we're we're taking uh slabs of the book of Acts and looking at themes or really not, not just themes in concepts, but but the kind of tasks and the kinds of things that God and his son and through us, his church, do in this world in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So it was Jesus' sort of final will and testament, if you will. It was his last commission, his last declaration to the disciples before he left, that they would be his witnesses. After they received the Holy Spirit, they would be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Earlier, he had told them that great commission, that they were to go into all the world, to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel, baptizing believers, and then teaching them all that Christ had commanded them. Now, what we've been looking at in the book of Acts is exactly as... As we look at look at what God has done in the book of Acts, what things has he done? What things does he send, like persecution? What things does he allow to happen, like controversy? What ways does he command his people so that we can be doing that which we have been commanded to do, to take the gospel, plant churches, and train disciples in righteousness right across the face of this beautiful earth? That's what we're asking. What does the book of Acts tell us is the normative ways that God builds his church uh, in the local, in the immediate, in our lifetime, but also over church history as we look back over the last two glorious millenniums of Jesus' reign. So look into Acts chapter 19. That's where we're going to be today. As we consider the question or the, the topic, the task of contending for the faith. It was the Apostle uh, Jude, or the New Testament writer Jude, who told us, the brother of Jesus, he told us to be contending, earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to to the saints. We do not have a a piecemeal theology where we can take and leave uh, what parts of the biblical doctrine that we like. We don't have a a trickling uh, revelation from God, which started with Jesus and the apostles. But, you know, he's telling us new things every generation. Now, we have a deposited truth in the Word of God given to us from heaven so that we might learn it, discover its commandments, and be benefited therein through salvation in the Lord. Jesus Christ and through understanding how it is that he commands us to live. We are to earnestly contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And that Greek word for contend is a language of, of wrestling, of getting into the, uh, into the octagon, if you will, or the Roman version of the octagon being, of course, the, the, the great uh, place where the, the, uh, the, I'm totally blanking on what they were called. Uh, I remember Russell Crowe was in a movie. Gladiator, no, the Gladiator. Yeah, the Colosseum. Good history buff said, "No, the gladiators." That's that, that's what I'm focused on. The gladiators with the sword. Remember Russell Crowe, his beard, his his pecs. I'll stop. I've got to stop. But but uh, but we love it. Uh, the, we'll have a a church viewing of that movie together <coughs> in our church history session. But that language is is the is the language of contending, getting into a competition where you verse others and try and come out of the combat. On top, and today in our sort of day and age, it's it's very common to get a to get quite upset. I was going to say a little bit, but get quite upset, quite quite uncomfortable with the language of of contending for the faith. When a church would put on a, a debate, Christian versus an atheist, or or put on a debate to to wrangle out certain doctrines, or when we when we speak with argumentation, we try and put forward positions as opposed to other positions, or even as we hold to something like a confession of faith and. we where we say not just what we do believe, but also what we reject. We, we affirm this, we deny this. That just makes our, our modern sensibilities sort of irk within us as we, as we come up to this, this idea of polemics. Polemics, the, the Greek word actually comes from the Greek uh, 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 demon who was an embodiment of war. The divine embodiment of war was, was polemas. And then they got from, the, uh, from that idea in the rhetoric and in the argumentation, whether in written or spoken form, if you are attacking an idea, if you are arguing for something and against another idea, that would be called a polemic. So when you go to theology uh, seminary or you go, to, you go to university whoever might teach this these days and you go and learn the art of rhetoric and argumentation and debating, you're learning polemics, the warfare of ideas. And, and even as we use that military language, each of us sort of, sort of shrinks a little bit because it feels altogether improper in our day and age. But we take our lead and our guide from the word of God, what it commands And the examples we see our heroes of the faith in Jesus and in the apostles, what we see them do becomes our norm. We always naturally hope that as much good can be done for the kingdom if we're just quiet and agreeable in our culture and we're friendly and if we avoid confrontation and debate the same good can be done for the kingdom we don't need to get up and give these diatribes and these denunciations just preach what you believe i've heard many times just preach what you believe and don't pull down other people's beliefs it's it's unbecoming you you preach what you believe don't tell everybody that what they believe is stupid but what i believe is that what they believe is stupid So I will, so I will. We must preach not just what we believe, but also what we don't believe. If we were to tear out the books of the Bible, or at least just the New Testament, if we were to tear out of that book, out of that New Testament, all of the books that were polemic in very nature, not just that it has some bits where he's arguing, but that the whole point of the letter is you hold this idea or some of the heretics are teaching this idea, allow me to dismantle it logically and reasonably line by line. If we were to remove every book of the New Testament that had that aim and goal in it, we would be left with very, very few. The New Testament, in fact, the Bible as a whole, is a polemical work of God. God has not designed the world or the events of the kingdom in such a way that we can only ever be doing what feels positive. By way of analogy, just as the the first man after the fall, he he was cursed and so was the ground. It was impossible from that point on for him to ever gain fruit, to ever plant wheat and gain bread. It was impossible for him to continually live from the fruit of the ground without blood, sweat, and tears. The sweat of his brow was that by which he would gain a living, and so it is even in this new kingdom, in this new covenant, it's still the same. That we cannot, without blood, sweat, and tears of spiritual nature, without fighting against what is put up against Christ, we cannot build. We cannot gain that which is spiritual fruit. Spurgeon uh, had a had a a a, a magazine that was called the Sword and the Trowel. He took that from the, from the imagery of, of uh, Nehemiah back in the, in the Old Testament when he went back to his homeland of Jerusalem and sought to build the wall around the holy city. He commanded that his men would work both with, with, a, with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, that they would be building with one hand positively. They would be doing the good work, but they were not naive. They were not silly twer- 21st century evangelicals who just wanted to do the positive stuff because they had enemies. They had real, living, breathing animosity towards their enemies and enemies towards them. And so their enemies would come, they would break it down. They would try and kill them as we have been warned that the devil is a prowling lion. Do not think you can only build positively. Yes, hold your trowel. Lay brick upon brick and work to build, but hold in your other hand the sword, the spear, the javelin, so that you might be able to fight off those enemies that come to destroy the work. Of course, the Christian religion is a polemical religion in that we believe things and we are called to defend those things. This this really applies, as we think as a church, this applies in general and in particulars. So some particular applications of this as we, as we look at the, the life of the Apostle Paul will be things like, like yeah, we, we will hold a debate. We will do Bible studies where we are saying what we believe and what other iterations of Christianity or other cults and what other religions, what they believe and how we ought to be able to answer them. We'll, we'll learn our apologetics. And we'll learn how to answer people as they ask questions of the faith. We'll, we'll learn how to shoot out other people's worldviews to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll do those things. That's, that's the particulars. How does this look? We preach with an engaging, uh, 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 polemical bent. We hold debates. We do our studies. We learn our apologetics. But it's also just in, in the general. In the whole stance and posture of the church, she ought to be militaristic in her worldview. She ought to be leaning and have a bent about her in a local church and the global church. We ought to look and feel polemical in our love. That's the argument that's being put forward today. If you want want like a little taste of this that kind of proves everything I've said so far, that it's awesome when we're polemical, that it makes us very very uncomfortable naturally when, when people do get a little bit polemical and, and, and that there is a need for polemics to fight the warfare of the mind in these days. I'm just going to read a section of Martin Luther. <coughs> the eminently reasonable, fair, balanced, qualified, calm writer of the 1500s you you tell me by your reaction that you have not read much luther <clears throat> he was known for his for his enormous outlandish insults towards the pope the sorts of things that he would call dog's vomit that he would be putting out onto paper it was you just need to go and read it he had bowel issues and all i'll say is that his bowel issues Gave him plenty of, let's say, imageries and analogies to use in his writings. He's very comedic to read. But there was a a great towering intellect of the Catholic Church back in the 1500s called Erasmus. And he had put out this enormous tome, this this huge book arguing and debating for the belief of the the freedom of the will is what it it was called. It was basically against the Reformed Lutheran doctrine of of depravity where where he was saying that the Catholic Church's view of, of how dead we are in sin is the true view. He was arguing that we still have freedom of the will. We still have the ability to make our own works and efforts before God acceptable. And so Martin Luther waited, which which was very out of character for him. He waited a few months before he responded to that. And he he opens up in his preface and he says, Erasmus, I I thank you for being patient for my very, very, this new thing with Luther. He was slow to speak. He says, but I have not been quiet because I've been so knocked back by your argumentation. I've simply been waiting for you to produce something better. I I, I assume that an intellect of your size has something worth debating, but as I flick through your book, I just don't find it here. In the preface, he says this, the reason I would take, uh, uh, sorry, he says this, your book, in my estimation, is so mean and vile, and I greatly feel for you for having defiled your most beautiful and ingenious language with such vile trash. And I feel an indignation against the matter also, the the content that he's written. I feel an indignation against that content that such unworthy stuff should be borne about in ornaments of eloquence so rare. In other words, you have a way of putting things. Your, Your mastery of the language is so exquisite and rare, he says, that this kind of content coming out of your pen is as if rubbish or dung should be carried in vessels of gold and silver. I love Luther. I hope you can tell I love Luther. You should just read some more of Luther. That kind of like now, now let's let, let's have it said. Luther is known for being particularly contentious. So don't all try and go from nice neighborhood granny on one side and then tomorrow deal out the Luther cards. We need to we need to be sanctified each in our own way. But I love the way that Luther would go out of here. Look to Acts chapter 19, which is where I did ask you to go, and look at verse 8. <coughs> And we'll read till the bottom of verse 10. What we're doing is looking at Paul's second missionary journey. We will zoom in and look at his Ephesian ministry when he was in Ephesus preaching for two years. And we will be looking at the types of things he did and the types of things that we can learn. He said uh, uh, Luke writes down in Acts chapter 19 verse 8. And when Paul entered the synagogue, oh, sorry, and Paul entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this morning. <clears throat> what we see here is an example of what Paul did in his, uh, in his missionary journeys. Now, we're going to go through uh, parts of 17, parts of chapter 8, Acts chapter 18. There we go. And then parts of chapter 19. And look at the kinds of ways that Paul would do his missionary work. We saw that uh, just, to, just to get an idea of the scope here, you, you can go, flip back into the end of your Bible and probably find a map. If you've got a good one, you'll probably find a map there. And you can see what is called Asia, is that whole landmass between what ends up becoming uh, becoming sort of North Israel area and just before you get to Greece over on the west hand side, you have this enormous landmass that is called Asia Minor. And he's saying that in that whole area, the word of the Lord was deposited and spread and heard. People everywhere were hearing about Jesus because of Paul's mighty, amazing ministry in Ephesus. This is an exemplary thing. This is an exemplary ministry that we want to take lessons from. So look with me at Acts chapter 17. Our first point today is is that we ought to be polemical because it was Paul's norm to do so, and we can see this in his second missionary journey, his logical, polemical basis for all of his speech. Acts chapter 17, and look at verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, so this is normative of everywhere he goes, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. This was in Thessalonica. Paul went in, found the synagogue, and proved and reasoned and explained and debated about these things, verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. What we see here, as Luke goes to write down a a two-sentence summary of those at least a few weeks, maybe a few months of Paul's ministry, these are the words that he comes up with. He goes in and the words that he uses, that Luke uses to describe Paul, is reasoning with them, explaining to them, proving to them, verse 4, that they were persuaded and that they believed. This is all logical, understanding based, mentally aimed, spiritually yes emotionally engaging, absolutely was he affectionate? You bet he says that in the book of Thessalonians but was his ministry mainly based and centered around the idea of using logical arguments born from the word of God and then and then setting up the arguments of the, of the unbelievers setting up the world view of, of, the, of the opponents of the day and then showing how the, the wrecking ball of Jesus Christ as revealed in scriptures smashes those worldviews and ideas yes that was his norm that was his go-to way of doing ministry it didn't get him treated well of course he was run straight out of town look at verse 22 in Acts chapter 17 by this time he's been chased out of Thessalonica chased out of Berea chased out of Athens and now i uh, sorry chased into Athens <clears throat> And now in Athens, supposed to be taking a break, we see that he uh, uh, has taken some street preaching up in the markets. People were believing. And then he was taken and put on what seems like a formal philosophical charge that he was bringing heresies into the great philosophical center, the great mind city of Athens. And so he's put on uh, a charge and he's given an opportunity for a defense. Now what we see in verse 22, I would love to preach it all, but we did that a while back last year. Uh, Verse 22 until verse 34, you see that Paul is standing up and giving a reasoned, logical debate for the, the, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how this conflicts with contradicts and opposes the Greek philosophies of the day. He, he uses language like, you worship in ignorance, I tell you the truth. All sorts of missiologists and, and, and uh, people who want to help us be friendly in our, in our culture tell us that what Paul was doing there was he was getting alongside them and understanding their beliefs and then hand in hand walking them towards Jesus Christ in a non-confrontational way. You have an idol to an unknown God. It's as if he's saying, let me come alongside you and help me show you how how that unknown God is actually lovey-dovey Jesus. And he's got a Valentine card for you. Paul literally gets up and he says, you worship a bunch of gods plus one in ignorance. What you worship without knowledge, that's what he just said, to the philosophers of the known world, what you worship in stupid ignorance, I will tell you the truth. On the basis of the revealed word of God, which points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. And then he goes on and he keeps on saying, in fact, it's not just that you don't know him. It's like you're looking around trying to find him. You've never found him. And he's right next to all of us. I've already got myself. I'm preaching through the sermon. I told you I wouldn't. But this is what he does. His polemical, logical, argumentative kind of mindset warfare is what he does in Athens that day against the philosophers of the day. look what happens down in, in verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. He got a gleaning for the gospel through his polemics that day. Also look at Acts chapter 18 verse 5. He's gone on from Athens and he's landed in Corinth. Verse 5 We see him again utilizing this logical, word-based, polemical kind of of ministry to preach for Jesus and against the beliefs of those people, of course, the Jews in this specific example. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. That's the Lord coming alongside Paul to encourage him because of the the, the persecution, the difficulty that he had received in every city. The Lord himself says in a vision, keep on speaking. And then look at verse 11. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them teaching the word of God. Again, his ministry was word-based, logical-based, and as we've seen, polemical. Look at uh, verse 28. Here we also see uh, Apollos, who was in Ephesus. Apollos, it says... He powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. I know I'm making this point, but I need to make it because we're apt to forget it every time we go back into the, the, the workplace, But when we go and get baptized again into the culture of our day, we keep forgetting that the Christian religion and the Christian ministry is of love. We'll get there. We'll look at that. It is kind. We, we embody Christ's, Christ's uh, uh, personal traits and the fruit of the spirit yes but our aim is one of a military leader to his soldiers go and take the land fight the good fight Paul would tell us go with worldview warfare and and show people through reasoning through logic through arguments through polemics through your loving apologetic to them that Jesus is the Christ that they must bow down and worship look at Acts chapter 19 we saw this in verse 9 Acts chapter 19 verse 9 Sorry, verse 8, that when he went into the synagogue, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He's making arguments from scripture and he's reasoning with them that they are wrong and that according to God's revelation, Jesus is the one who deserves the worship. And in verse uh, uh, verse 9, it says that he withdrew from them and took the Christian disciples with him, reasoning in the, daily in the hall of Tyrannus, This was a this is a a secular sort. Maybe a state funded. Maybe it belonged to a guy called Tyrannus, whatever it was. Paul worked as a tent maker during the day, half of the, uh, uh, during the day and the night. And then he preached in the middle of the day and late at night. And he used his hard-earned coin to rent out a large hall. And there he stood up and he reasoned. He did Bible studies. He held debates. He, argument, he, he argumented. He argued. He was engaged in the polemic spiritual warfare that he might be able to present the, 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 the gospel to the Ephesian city and with that, God blessed it to the spreading of the gospel across the entire nation. Now, look at the, look at what happens in the book of Acts in chapter nineteen as Paul's standing there in Ephesus. There's there's multiple different events that Luke then tells us happens around him. Just in case we're thinking that what we can do is get engaged in in this warfare, in this polemical uh, stature or posture of the church, we can do that. We can fight. The falsehood. We can, we can aim, take our aim at the devil and his hordes and it'll go fine with us, just just in case we ever get tempted to think that. There's Acts chapter 19. Uh, look uh, at verse uh, 11. <clears throat> uh, sorry, uh, down at verse uh, 12. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia. Um, uh, sorry, verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a silversmith, Demetrius, who, was, who made silver shrines of Artemis, the god, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that this business we have, uh, from this business we have our wealth. <clears throat> and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people away, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. What an insult. But there, that is how they they summarise Paul's argument. You know what they were hearing Paul say? Not just Jesus loves you and has a good plan for your life. Not just here's what I believe. I won't take down what you believe. As they summarized his teaching, they were hearing him right. They were hearing him saying that gods made by human hands, this will just blow your mind, that, didn't make you that thing that you just made quarried from the earth made with your hands i need to say again that didn't actually make the entire universe is that are we okay with that we we're, we're tracking okay that's what they were hearing him say that's how they summarized his gospel he preaches the gospel you know what else he does tear down the folly of unbelief paul also in uh, 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 has the the burning of the books of the evil spirits. Look at um, uh, verse uh, 18. Many of those who were now believers came confessing, divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them all and found to come to about 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here, here is another clue that Paul's ministry had a polemical, idle-finding, false-view-attacking tenor to it, is that those Christians who had been involved in the dark magic arts in their past, having come to the church, were now understanding this is evil, we need to put it away. They get together and just have a good old-fashioned book-burning. Always gets weird when there's a book-burning book burning Always a little bit culty when a church does a book burning. Just not gonna be a practice that we commit to. Done it before, let me just say that. Done it before, not gonna be a, a yearly, monthly kind of thing. You know what I mean? Uh, book burnings always just draw the wrong crowds. It it just it really draws the radicals. <clears throat> but anyway, they did a they did a good old-fashioned book burning and it was fine because he was an apostle. But here they are. You can just see everything that he's doing, everything about his ministry, people are responding in such a way that you can tell this guy's taken no prisoners. He's shooting down everything that he can find. The, the idol makers take, that down, take down that worldview. The, the, the magic arts of the sins of the Christians take down that area of their worldview. Even the demons were being cast out, as we see in verse 12. Everybody had a problem with Paul's message because the gospel of Jesus Christ has a problem with everybody's worldview. The gospel of Jesus Christ... Or, or Jesus of the gospel—the Jesus that we preach—is a person from history, yet of God. He is a person sitting in heaven, and he is personally offended by the worldview of every person who is not bent to knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is personally offended. And he doesn't send us out to go and get personally offended. He sends us out as emissaries, as messengers to say, friends, your king, the king over the universe, your creator, the God. There's only one God. You're worshiping false ones or you're denying the one that does exist. There's only one God, and you have made him angry. You have opposed him. You've broken his law. You've pretended he doesn't exist. You worship other things in his place. Every breath you draw is warfare against the God you say you don't believe in. But he came. He came as a man. God in flesh, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He came, he lived perfectly, he showed his love and his compassion and then he took your sin. He didn't find you out, butcher you, kill you for your sin. He took your sin onto himself as a great act of God's mercy and love and he died The very penalty that every one of us should have died had all of our sin been been conglomerated into one person, the death that we all deserve to die, Jesus died in our place. And having offered the sufficient sacrifice, let let me say that again. Having completed the payment that was needed for every single one of us to be forgiven, that is good news. Having completed the payment so that you can go to heaven for free. Having finished that, God raised him from the dead and gave him the honor of ruling over the universe, over his church until the end of time and into eternity. But the only people who get to benefit and enjoy and and live in that new kingdom of Jesus Christ are those who take what they believe and put it down at the feet of Jesus Christ who take what they believe and put it through the funnel of the Word of God and only believe what the Bible allows to filter through. The only people who are allowed to enter the kingdom of God are those who, in faith, believe that they are sinners. In faith, believe that God will judge them. In faith, believe that Jesus died for them and rose again and will accept us into His kingdom if we but believe. All of those people are ushered into the kingdom and everybody who stands fast in their own worldview worships their own God, denies the reality of Jesus, every one of them will be blinded, will be condemned, will live their life in in horror and pain and death until the moment of their death when they pass into an unending punishment of torment for their sins. You see, therefore, why Paul comes and he proclaims this message, that he finds whatever worldview, whatever bonds of, of mental shackles, whatever he can find that are holding people back from the knowledge of Jesus, to those he goes, he takes an ax, he blows it apart, he tries to do that for the sake of saving the souls of those that Jesus loves. Paul's whole ministry, therefore, as we sort of just recapped his ministry in his second missionary journey and focusing in on what happened in Acts chapter 19 at Ephesus, his whole ministry was polemical because he loved the Lord Jesus, because he was captive to the word of God, and because he loved those to whom he preached. He was polemical. And then in Acts chapter 20, as he's talking to the elders of Ephesus, he kind of recaps his whole ministry, and he says, I was among you preaching the kingdom of God. He says, I was preaching the gospel of grace. I declared the whole counsel of God. I declared repentance to God and faith toward Jesus Christ to both Jew and Gentile." He just says stuff that just sounds like ordinary evangelistic gospel stuff. But to him, that was summarizing an altogether polemical ministry. So we cannot say that like Paul, we are preaching the kingdom, the gospel of grace, repentance to God, if and the whole counsel of God, unless we like him are bringing forward those polemical arguments to tear down those other things. The act of being of contending for the faith, when a church commits to this, It reminds us that we are at war, not our war. No Christian is allowed to go and fight your own war and your own battles. That's what the Bible calls folly. That's what the Bible calls being quarrelsome. We find people have problems with us. We're taking everything personal, finding every opportunity to argue and debate and get in people's grill. All of that is being quarrelsome. That's not what warriors, that's not what soldiers enlisted for God have the right to do. Rather, we are enlisted to serve Jesus. We are warriors called to the fight of our master and king and our warfare is spiritual. Matthew Henry says this, Every Christian is enlisted under Christ's banner to strive against sin, to strive against sinful doctrines, to strive against sinful practices and sinful habits and customs, both in himself and in others. The uniquely Christian mindset is that when we speak of spiritual warfare, of going to war for the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not something that is purely on the outside, finding other people, aiming at them, blaming them, judging them. It's first the warfare against our own sin. We will be, we will be uh, unready. We will be waste of services and materials in the kingdom of Jesus. We'll be a waste of the bullets and guns if we are soldiers that are not inwardly, disciplined, and like Jesus. So our warfare is first of all against our own sin, our own sinful habits, but it also extends to the world. In Jesus' call, he calls us into a warfare and therefore when we adopt that posture, we are remembering that call of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvin said this. He's comparing the ministry of the gospel to warfare as Jesus does. And he says, in doing this, in calling gospel warfare, Jesus uses a most apt similitude. The life of a Christian, it is true, is a perpetual warfare. For whoever gives himself to the service of God will have no truce from Satan at any time, but will be harassed with incessant disquietude. Incessant disquietude. In other words, just for the, for the state schools among us, unstopping loudness. How's that? Is that all right? All right. Incessant disquietude I put that in brackets for me. I, I needed that explanation. That man, therefore, is that man, therefore, is mistaken, who girds himself for the discharge of this office, but is not at the same time furnished with courage and bravery for contending. He is not exercised otherwise than in fighting. For we must take this into account: that the gospel is like a fire by which the fury of Satan is enkindled. Hence, it cannot but be that he will arm himself for a contest whenever he sees that it is advanced. The gospel, he says, is a fire that sets Satan on fire. Therefore, whenever he sees the people of God raise up that flame, he will notch his arrows. He will put his bullets in in order to take us down. The spiritual life of a Christian is one of warfare. You, you have in your bulletins today a, a, a short, brief biography of J. Gresham Machen, who's a man in the, in the 1900s who was, a, who was a Protestant, Presbyterian, Calvinistic Christian. And in his day, the, uh, the idea that was getting so popular and, and, and sneaking into the mainstream churches was the idea that you can have your Bible and we can believe everything it says as long as what is true is not also fact. You're living in the world that believes this now. Something can be true for you, but not fact for everybody. In other words, they would say, and this, what gave rise to postmodernism was first modernity, and what they were saying, the liberals of modernism, they were saying that, you know, Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. Of course, we spiritually believe that, but there's never been a baby that was born of a virgin. It didn't happen. Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead in, in all of our hearts, but... No guy actually got up out of the grave. Like, it's true that it happened. It's not a fact. It's true that the Jews were liberated from Egypt, but that doesn't mean it happened in history. Do you see how they tried to, tried to mingle all the language that said, we believe what you believe, but we deny the very essence and fundamental, vital foundations of your doctrine. They were sneaking in. And so Machin had, this, had this, uh, uh, this reputation of being a troublemaker, he had the reputation of being the guy that kept picking fights because every time somebody came to get to get interviewed, to come onto the Presbyterian board, or every time somebody was getting interviewed to become a staff at the seminary, he would just drill them with questions. Do you believe this? Yes. Do you reject this? No. Ooh, ooh. Do you believe this with, with extra qualifications? Well, how would you say this? How would you answer this? He would just drill them, and everybody else is saying, look, man, they, they signed the document. They say they believe what we believe. Settle down, Machen. But he, he earned not just a reputation, but now a stance as a hero in the Christian faith. Because what he did was stem the tide and slow the advance of liberalism and postmodernism into the Western church, if only other people had followed in his wake. Most evangelical churches today are awash with that kind of thinking. But he said, as people told him, we want revival. We want unity. We want spirit. We want salvations, not just gospel exactitude. We don't just want doctrinal arguments, Machen. We want unity and peace and love and spirit and revival. And he wrote, every true revival is born in controversy and leads to more controversy. That has been true ever since our Lord said that he came not to bring peace, but a sword. And do you think... And what do you think will happen when God sends a new reformation upon the church? We cannot tell when that blessed day will come, but when that blessed day does come, I think we can say at least one result is that it will bring, and we shall hear nothing on that day about the evils of controversy in the church. He says, when it comes, it will bring controversy, and we won't be complaining about it. We, uh, all, that, all, that will be sw- all of that thinking will be swept away as with a mighty flood, A man who is on fire with a message never talks in that wretched, feeble way. But he proclaims the truth joyously and fearlessly in the presence of every high thing that is lifted up against the gospel of Christ. Here from the hero Machin. if God sends, when God sends, every time God sends his spirit in boldness, there he also sends a controversial, contending, polemical spirit among his people to declare the truth. And lovingly tear down those falsehoods. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. As we've seen here that the church must realize she is on a warfare. So she's in a war. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and go to verse 3, we see what our weapons in this warfare really are. 2 Corinthians 10, verse three and four. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Here's Paul saying that we fight a spiritual war. That does not mean that there is nothing fleshly, nothing human, nothing historical, nothing nothing bodily to be done. For even speaking, even writing, that's all physical stuff. Here's what he's saying. Though we live in the flesh, in bodies, in the world of sinful flesh, we don't fight according to the flesh. We don't wage war according to the flesh. We don't use, like our people try and use, lies, slander, dirty jokes, filthy language in order to win an argument. Nor do we go up and take up arms... Load the guns, get in the tanks, and go and liberate a nation and make them Christian at at gunpoint. That's not how we wage the warfare. Don't hear anything about the militaristic call of the New Testament and think violence. Nothing of that. No one has ever been converted at force. No one has ever been been insulted into the kingdom. He says, we don't do those things. We don't fight sinfully. We don't fight violently. Look at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare. So there is a warfare. We do have weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. When you read that word strongholds, and maybe some of your backgrounds, you'll start thinking, yes, break every chain, break every chain. Strongholds be gone. We get the, we get the apostle, he swings his jacket, we get anointed, we, we speak in tongues, we break strongholds, generationally speaking, right? My, my dad uh, looked at a picture once, and my, my, my great-grandfather uh, 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 married a witch, and so we've got this generational curse, right? no. Not the strongholds that Paul is talking about here. When he says strongholds, he's using the language of, of an embattlement, a, of a city that has walls up that are double defended with men along the top of them, tall brick, siege tower type things. He's, he's speaking of warfare. He says those strongholds, the castle, our Weapons have God's power, divine power, to tear down strongholds, destroy those strongholds. And what is it that he says we then go and tear down? He says, we destroy arguments, and every lofty opinion that is raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete we don't we don't punish the unbeliever we don't take captive the muslim we don't destroy the the atheist all right all right what well, we destroy what the strongholds are, Paul is saying, the thing that in the spiritual realm, if we could all just get our eyes above the physical, if we could see the spiritual realm, what we would see is people chained up, burdened, tied in, in, in jails and prisons and behind strongholds of beliefs and mindsets and opinions and worldviews and arguments. That they inherit these ways of thinking from their parents. They, they inherit this way of thinking from the songs we listen to. They're, they're discipled into knowledge that is against the knowledge of God, Paul says. To the work of the Christian. Maybe one-on-one, you, you, you go in with your friend and you sit down over coffee and, and through your conversation. What you're doing, as kind as you are, as much as you keep buying the coffee for them, what you're doing is planting grenades under the foundations of their strongholds. And your prayer is that as you walk away, they go back and they start thinking and they're seeing seeing the explosion, the implosion of everything they've ever thought and believed falling down into rubble. That's what you're praying for. As we do it as a church, what we're doing is setting up the siege towers and marching them up against the worldviews, the beliefs, the arguments that the world holds, and we're tearing them down by the preaching of the gospel and the opposing of those views. That is what we are doing. That, that's in my preaching every Sunday. It is a polemical weapon of the word of God to tear down your wrong beliefs to tear down the wrong beliefs of the culture around us. So so I'm going to be very honest. I I often try and think like Gideon. I I like Gideon. Gideon is kind of an embodiment of ministry for me in the sense that what he did when he received the call of God to go and be faithful and fight a war, the first thing he did, he got up in the middle of the night, he went into town, into the very center of town, found the idol, wrapped some ropes around it, attached it to his Mustang, couple of cows, attached it to his pickup truck and knocked it over. That's what preaching needs to do. That's what a church needs to see itself doing. That's what Paul did. He went to the center of town. He took aim and said, they believe this. This is their main worldview. This is what they worship. This is what gives them security. Notch the arrows. Let's take them down. Tie them up, boys. Let's do a Bible study on that. Let's tell them how foolish and silly that is. Let's show them how the word of God opposes that. Let's point them to Jesus Christ by tearing down these things. The only difference between what we should do, what Paul did, and what Gideon did, was that Gideon did it fearfully in the dark of night. We need to do it in broad daylight without any hiding of truth or of our motives and simply say, Jesus died for the world and we're coming for it all. Every enemy has a target on its back. Jesus was told, you shall reign until the Father puts every enemy under your feet. He shall reign. He must reign until every enemy of worldview, argument, belief, False religion until every one of them is put down at the feet of Jesus because the masses have rejected them like in Ephesus. They throw their idols into the fire. They throw their books of magic into the fire. They flee to the Lord Jesus Christ because the faithful of earth, his church, have done a good job like Paul of presenting Jesus as glorious and every other worldview, sin, and belief as folly. This is the task of the church. This is what keeps the church relevant. How often we hear the idea that we need to stay relevant in our culture, don't be fighting, don't be polemical, let's stay calm, let's be friends with them all, stay relevant. But in fact, that is how you lose your relevance. Paul was never more relevant to the church of Ephesus than when he started shooting at and tearing down their idols, right? You saw the revival that broke out in Ephesus because he chose to be so polemical. We are never more irrelevant than we are when we are indifferent to the worldviews of people around us. Machen, he said himself, indifference about doctrine makes no heroes of the faith. John Piper addressed this idea of, let's stop arguing about the gospel and just get out and share it. False dichotomy. Let's share it. Let's get it right. He said that would be similar to saying it is more important to get the food to the starving village than to argue about aerodynamics. Let's fly the plane, drop the food into the village. That's way more important than all these arguments about fuel mileage and aerodynamics. And he says, well, in one sense, it's more urgent. And in another sense, you cannot do one without the other. Unless you got the plane right, unless you've got the right amount of food, fuel, pilots, people on the plane, you won't make it. We can be as zealous as we want in preaching the gospel. If we don't get imputation right, you're preaching a false gospel, sending them to hell. We need to get it right, and we need to get it out. And this is all born from love to Christ and love of neighbor. It is Go over to the book of 2 Timothy <clears throat> It's so relevant to me, so 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 important that when we just looked at Second uh, at the um, uh, yeah language of Second Corinthians, while you turn to to Second um, Timothy chapter two. Paul, Paul was reflecting, no doubt, on his ministry in Ephesus. In fact, the, the first letter of Corinth was written while he was in Ephesus. When He, he then goes and writes Ephesians. He uses warfare language of our spiritual warfare, armory, armor of God and whatnot. This was so continual for Paul. And then by the time you get to 2 Timothy, where Paul is then writing to his protege, uh, this young Timothy, who is in Ephesus, he writes to him about fighting the good fight of the faith. Agonize, strive, fight. Fight for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he says here in verse 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. There again, the warfare. There again, the military language. But what was Paul's example? As you fight on the front line and run, you will be shot at, you will suffer. They'll start riots against you. They'll throw you out. They'll bruise you. They'll stone you. They'll beat you. They'll malign you. Share in those sufferings as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who has enlisted him. Every soldier, especially pastors, but every soldier of Jesus Christ, every Christian has been enlisted into the army of Jesus. And he says, your life on earth now belongs to me. And therefore it is because we care, not about our own reputation, not about how many arguments we can win, not because of how, how impressively, polemically we're trying to, to, uh, to act and show ourselves. None of that. The reason we argue, we sit down, we pray, we evangelize, we give the apologetic. The reason we do that is because we are enlisted in order to proclaim and defend the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, who rose for us, who reigns for us. It's his commission. It is his lordship that we seek to honor. It is out of love for God, love for his son Jesus Christ, that we do all of the contending that is given to us to do. John MacArthur says that the love that the Christian needs is a love born from conviction not sentiment, a love born from conviction about what is true, a conviction about what is ultimate, a conviction about what is important, not a mere sentiment about what we feel. Our love towards Christ is born of conviction. Our love towards each other is born of conviction. I'm reminded of, uh, of Jay Gresham Machen's death. He'd spent this big year writing, teaching, debating there in, in, uh, uh, in Westminster Theological Seminary, that he'd he had founded. He had this enormous year, 1936, huge year. He was unmarried, and no one looked after him the way that he needed. He was tired, he was sick, he was on the verge of dying, his co-workers said, and they compelled him to take a break before the new year. Take a, it's December now, you've taught all year, go and take a break over Christmas, but he was a man of his word and said, I will go and preach the sermons that I promised that I would go and preach. And so he got on the train, and on that cold train going north, he caught pneumonia, and the next few weeks he lay in bed and slowly died. December, uh, uh, the 1st of January, 1937, was when he passed away. But lying there, dying on his deathbed, hardly able to speak, he had a telegram sent to a very good friend. It simply read, The active obedience of Christ. Full stop. No hope without it. Send." He'd spent much of his life debating this idea of the the imputation of Jesus Christ, that every single one of us are guilty before God and we need not just our guilt paid for to get into heaven, to be blessed before God. We need an active, positive righteousness to be blessed for. the, The great ask, the great question of all of religion is this. Where can man get a righteousness worthy of being blessed by God? We cannot do it. Oh, what, what does God come down and help us with angels and church and laws? Does God help us and then we do it? No, no one can do it. Where do we get the righteousness needed to enter heaven? That's the great question of all of the ages. And the, the, the answer given to us in the gospel is that that righteousness that gets you into God's good graces, that gets you into heaven for all eternity, is an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of you, A righteousness that is not earned by you, but given to you. Namely, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who in history lived in our place and earned that righteousness for us. Therefore, that righteousness being given to us overshadows every one of our failures. No matter how bad your week has been, by faith you have a perfect righteousness. No matter how weak your prayer life or your fighting temptation has been, in Christ you have an infinite, perfect righteousness. That's what gets you in. And here's matron, a life lived in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, in the trenches, dying on his bed. And what is he right? Thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. This is, this is the burning desire in any true church, any true pastor, and this pastor here today. The burning desire is that those without that righteousness would come to find that righteousness in Jesus Christ. We, we attack your worldview. We pull down your beliefs. We invite you to church. We tell you the gospel. We preach Jesus. We explain the Bible with this one hope that you would see the Lord Jesus Christ as the only true God, that you would see him as the one who lived and died for you, that in him is provided for you the, the infinite, perfect, divine righteousness that you need, and that simply by faith, by not doing anything, but simply by faith, you can receive that and be in heaven. That is the great desire of the church. That's why we engage in polemics, because as Paul says, we are enduring everything for the sake of the elect. Let's pray. Father God, it is it is our desire, it is our prayer that you would overlook our weaknesses, that you would overlook our sins, that you would overlook our folly and our our, our earthiness, and rather God, that in grace you would see our hearts, that you would you would answer our prayers, that we wish to be those who are used as vessels in this world, who are used for your glory, for the sake of the building of the church, for the sake of glorifying Jesus, for the sake of saving souls. Well, God, we desire that above everything else. We have distractions that come in. We have, we have a job that takes time and energy. We have bills to pay. We have sins that cling so closely. We have a, a weakened flesh. We have burdened minds with anxieties and all sorts of things. But God, our deepest, desire is to hear on that last day well done good and faithful servant. We pray Lord God that each one of us whether father or mother, husband or wife, child, teenager, single, old, young, newly converted, converted a long time, wherever we are on the on the map of our Christian life, God, we pray. We humble our heart And we pray that you would make us soldiers for the Lord Jesus Christ that care not for our own skirmishes, that care not for our own reputation, that care not for our own goals and aims, but care only to please him who enlisted us. We thank you, Lord God, that no matter how how miserable we have been in this fight, that you have yet more grace to give to the humble. That if we come to you and remember your death in our place, and we call on you in grace, that you will give to us You will give to us your Holy Spirit to enable us to obey all that we've heard and seen in the life of Paul. Lord God, I pray especially for those who are unbelievers, those who are in our midst who do not believe in the Lord Jesus, who still live in their sin, who still oppose you and your law. And God, we pray that you would do what only you can do, that they would be raised from that spiritual death, that the stronghold that holds them back from belief in the Lord Jesus Christ would fall that they would see Jesus, that they would behold Him, that they would love Jesus, that they would place their faith in the fact of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord God, that you would be in our midst, sanctifying, growing, and saving souls this morning. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.